Well, welcome to the uh, Comparative Media Studies Colloquium. Uh, it's a pleasure tonight to introduce a colleague, Sasha Constanza Chuck. Uh, Sasha joined us last year, uh, coming from, he's kind of bounced between the two coasts and the two Annenbergs, did his master's degree at Annenberg East at University of Pennsylvania and finished up his PhD work at Annenberg West, kind of in the trail of Larry Gross and uh, people like Manuel Castells were there when he was there. And what he focuses on, his work focuses on civic media, and um, one of his, one of his uh, great roles here at, uh, at the Institute is that he's uh, one of the co-PIs, along with Ethan Zuckerman, of the Center for Civic Media, uh, a Knight uh, Foundation-backed uh, group that's doing really terrific work. Um, a lot of Sasha's work has focused on, uh, well, I guess a lot of your, during your student days, I mean, you were in, in Latin America busy trying to help people set up uh, what I guess we could call civic media operations. And uh, I know you've been very active in the immigrant community as well you know, on the West Coast. Um, Sasha teaches courses in civic media. So um, if those of you who are looking for courses to take and want to know more about what we're doing tonight, there are courses in that sector and Sasha's the man to see. So without further ado, Sasha, um, welcome. Thanks. Um, so actually, before I start, there we had an announcement. Um, did you want to make the announcement? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, for those of you that aren't yet on the MIT, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Pass that around. Welcome, everyone. Uh, tonight I'm going to be talking about media culture in the Occupy movement. And I wanted to start with that clip of uh, Talib Kweli early on in Occupy Wall Street uh, using the people's mic, which is a social technology that we're going to return to a little bit later. So before I begin, just a little bit about myself. William already introduced me, but so I'm in part of Media Studies, the Center for Civic Media. I'm also currently a fellow at the Berkman Center, and I'm a co-founder of the Occupy Research Network. I'll talk more about later. And for those of you who have computers out, 
Uh, I'll give you a second uh, to jump into the shared live notes for this talk. Uh, this is an etherpad where you can just click and start typing and uh, take shared notes, drop in additional questions, links, and if you have questions for me uh, or things come up in the conversation that we don't get to address today, um, if you type them in there, I'm going to read this later, so uh, go for it. Was that, was that enough time? You guys got it? All right. So those of you who might still be looking for it, if someone could tweet it out. Uh, the hashtag, I don't know, Occupy Boston, that'll work. So today, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I'm going to uh, talk about some key concepts. I'm going to talk a bunch about methods. That'll be about half the talk. And then I'll talk about this concept of media culture and what I'm finding in terms of opened and closed dynamics in the media culture in the Occupy movement. And then we'll have a short discussion. And I just want to highlight that this, uh, this work that I'm presenting now, this is basically a draft uh, for a paper uh, that I'm writing um, for a social movement studies journal. And so these ideas are not fully formed. I'm trying to synthesize a lot of material uh, that's coming from a really wide range of approaches. Um, so I'm really going to be tossing a bunch of stuff out there, kind of scattershot, and, and we'll, we'll see how it goes tonight. So first of all, I, I won't spend too much time on this, but sort of basic overview background on some of the initial media moments uh, that generate uh, visibility for Occupy. So Adbusters um, in July you know, puts out this call and puts out this poster. What is our one demand? Um, there are planning sessions that are happening um, you know, during the summer and leading up into early September. So there's a small group of people. Um, this is an image uh, from Pompton Square Park of one of the early planning sessions for uh, the, the first small group of occupiers. Um, the group Anonymous... You have Anonymous? This video, warning the global banking systems. Uh, releases this video. I believe it's in August, um, which basically indicates that Anonymous Network is going to be supporting uh, the Occupy Wall Street action. And that starts to generate a little bit more visibility, especially through uh, radical social movement networks and alternative media networks. Um, I won't spend much time on that because we have uh, an expert in the house, Molly Souter. Uh, you could talk to her if you want to know more about Anonymous and their connection to the Occupy movement. And I also recommend the work of Biela Coleman, um, who's been doing amazing stuff on, on Anons and their politicization. Um, of course, you have the initial small encampment, which generates some social media buzz, but not a lot of visibility. Um, until this clip uh, goes viral on YouTube, uh, which is of three uh, young white women getting kettled by NYPD and then pepper sprayed. This is the first time that you then uh, end up with visibility in uh, really in mainstream print media and broadcast media. Um, and then the movement really blows up uh, on October 1st when uh, several hundred people from Occupy Wall Street march across the Brooklyn Bridge, get uh, shut in by police, and, uh, and get arrested. And after that point, you have Occupy spreading across the country and then around the world. This is a crowd map uh, powered by the Ushahidi software, um, fed by a database of over 1,200 Occupies from around the world, which was uh, developed through a, a crowdsource process that I'll get into a little bit later um, of the locations of Occupies as of October 15th. 2011. Um, 
But if you want to, you know, the, the, the point here isn't to do a sort of whole timeline of the Occupy movement. The point is to really extract a couple interesting ideas. So I'm going to talk a little bit about media practices. So it really doesn't have to be that complicated. Nick Coldry calls these things that people do with the media in a 2004 article, theorizing media practices. Partly, uh, this is an idea that's uh, based on a response or an alternative approach to analyzing um, the relationship between uh, media, ideology, resistance, hegemony. So basically, Nick is interested in challenging, on the one hand, uh, the old school Marxist idea that you know mass media replicates dominant ideology and uh, you know injects the ideas of the ruling class into the brains of the masses, who are then powerless to do anything about it. And on the other hand, the active audience approach that became so popular uh, in the late 80s and 90s here in the U.S. that said, well, audiences know exactly what what they're doing. They consume popular culture uh, because it provides them different kinds of pleasures and uses and gratifications. So Nick is interested in, I guess, escaping this battle by talking about the range of things that people actually do with media. And that includes production, including the production of small forms of media. It includes um, conversation, critical analysis uh, in, in the home, at the point of reception, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think it's a useful concept, and it's something that certainly informs the way that, that I approach uh, you know, analysis of media. Media ecology isn't really the subject of today's talk. Um, I, I'm, we're talking about media ecology a lot lately at the Center for Civic Media. We're talking about different ways that we can map and understand the broader media ecology and how it's becoming transformed by new digital technologies and how ideas move across different parts of the media ecology. Um, but I'm especially concerned today in looking at, um, on the one hand, the technical affordances and political economy of both dominant and emergent media platforms also the way that differential levels of ICT access um, shape the ability of, in this case, especially social movement actors to engage with different uh, components of the media ecology. And then, um, I won't talk about this today, but another, you know, another shaping force on the media ecology is obviously the legal and normative constraints on speech. That's another talk. Um, I've been working previously with the framework of transmedia mobilization. So this is something that came out of my work in the, uh, you know, looking at how immigrant rights activists, uh, especially in Los Angeles, were working with media and producing media across every platform that they had access to, and specifically, you know, thinking about how to move narratives from one space to another. Um, but while I definitely think that we could, you know, it would certainly be a useful framework to analyze Occupy Wall Street as a transmedia mobilization, and we could do that and come back to it later, um, I wanted to zoom in a little bit on what I think of as a subcomponent or an enabling, uh, I guess, substrate for effective transmedia mobilization, which is social, me social movement media culture. And so I'm calling that the set of tools, skills, practices, and norms that movement participants or movement actors use to create, circulate, curate, and amplify movement media across all platforms. So how do we understand this complicated and dynamic and rapidly changing space? And how do we understand the relationship between movements and media? So I think that we need to use mixed methods. I don't think that it makes sense to um, focus on the most highly visible traces uh, of movement activity, which is one of the most common approaches today, uh, which is kind of say, well, wow, this is awesome. We have access to the whole new sets of data that movement actors are generating as they act, and that's specifically social media, and not just social media, but it's specifically Twitter. And the reason why Twitter um, is 
such a wonderful way for people to study social movement activity is because Twitter has a decent API that you can get access to a lot of a lot of information from. You can scrape it. You can you can pull stuff from it. And I'm going to look at that in a minute. Um, but I wanted to sort of throw this out there before I jump into looking at the at, at Twitter analysis and and what that can tell us about uh, social movement media practices and social movement media culture, um, because I don't think it's it's really adequate. I think what we should be doing if we want to understand these relationships is think about uh, what can we do using the affordances of uh, networked technologies, not just to pull out and capture traces of what used to be uh, what was uh, sort of activity in subaltern counterpublics or hidden transcripts, as uh, Scott would call them, which are now becoming increasingly visible as movement actors increasingly move online. But how can we organize scholarship uh, through open distributed collaborative approaches, through networked approaches of scholarship? Uh, how do we share data sets, uh, whether they be social media data sets or they be interview transcripts or they be uh, you know, semi-structured approaches or visual research or design research, basically whatever method you're using, um, how do we figure out how to do that uh, as networked actors so that we can do that type of work across multiple sites um, and we can do it with larger sets of data and we can do uh, sort of more interesting analysis. And so, you know, my attempt to engage in that uh, as Occupy Wall Street really kicked off was to co-found the Occupy Research Network. Um, so a couple of people in the room have been involved in, in that work as well. So Occupy Research basically started from the position, look, we know that as the Occupy movement takes off, a lot of people are going to be interested in studying it, um, both in terms of the media practices and media culture, but everything. And we also know that a lot of people will be asking the same research questions, and a lot of people will be interested in gathering similar data sets. Why don't we try and set up a coordinating space that's a networked space where people can share some of that work? And so one really clear example of that would be, um, you know, the, the, again, the Twitter data set. So hundreds of teams of people all trying to scrape, uh, you know, tweets with hashtags related to Occupy. Why don't we work together and share those data sets? And I'll talk in a minute about how we did, did that. Um, same thing with interviews. Uh, what, what is the uh, semi-structured interview guideline that you're going to be using? Is that something we could do across multiple sites and multiple locations so we could have some comparativity across sites? Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about and, and share some really early uh, results from the Occupy Research General Demographic and Political Participation Survey. Um, so this is one of the many projects of the Occupy Research Network. Um, these, this is the working group of people uh, who were actually involved in developing the survey instrument. It includes uh, folks who are accomplished, uh, you know, surveyors like uh, Zeynep, who is a, a Berkman Fellow at the moment, and people who are sort of occupiers who didn't necessarily have any formal uh, background but had really interesting kinds of tacit knowledge that helped us figure out, uh, you know, what, and, and embedded knowledge that helped us think about what types of questions would be useful to ask. So we have some people who are handles and some people who are, you know, uh, faculty at different institutions. Um, and so what we did is, uh, you know, coordinated uh, using Google Docs and IRC and conference calls to develop um, a, set, uh, a, a, set of, uh, a set of questions. This was a short form survey. We developed a survey guidebook, which would actually uh, be used by surveyors um, who, could, who could use it to be trained in uh, how can you gather the most effective or most uh, you know, valid forms of survey data in the context of, uh, of doing movement research. We drew heavily on a lot of existing, um, you know, movement research projects. Zainab helped us a lot um, with some of those strategies. 
Um, and we ended up uh, doing this both face-to-face uh, -face in, in camps, although we ended up not being able to do as much of that as we wanted, and very extensively online across multiple platforms. Um, it's not exactly a snowball sample. It's got a sort of, it's an interesting uh, new mixed method, um, which there are a lot of problems with the methodology, but it still provides us with some interesting data points. So one of the things we did is we used the database of all existing Occupy Facebook groups and uh, used a script to auto-post uh, this, the survey uh, to, um, to uh, ab about 1,200 uh, existing Facebook groups for, the, for uh, different occupies. Um, and that actually ended up driving about half of the traffic to the survey. So the people who actually filled out the survey came through that. We haven't calculated response rates. That would be an interesting uh, you know, challenge. You know, what, it, what does it mean um, when you have effectively posted to every existing uh, you know, Facebook group, but you um, but you don't actually have a real response rate. So uh, anyway, we could get into that later. But uh, so with all of those caveats, I want to share with you some of the preliminary results, specifically around media use within the Occupy movement. Um, and, and so the, and this, this survey has questions about different types of media use, including consumption and production, and it also has general demographic questions, um, including you know, uh, age, race, gender, ethnicity, uh, sexual identity, uh, employment status, that kind of stuff. So just very quickly, um, of our 5,000 uh, respondents, um, about 63% you know, of them had been to a camp. Um, we asked people sort of what types of activities they had done at a camp. And so here we have, um, of the 3,000 who had attended a camp, um, three quarters of them had been to a general assembly. Almost half of them had taken part in a working group. Um, that, was, that was kind of interesting. Um, and many of them had marched. And many of them, actually a quarter of them, uh, you know, said that they had uh, organized an event or an action. So that does fit with Occupy's self-representation as being a sort of leaderful movement. So a lot of people involved in organizing many different, uh, you know, micro-level actions. Um, this is interesting. So this is um, different types of actions that people might have done in relation to Occupy. And I want to just kind of highlight in the context of this, this talk. Um, so again, we haven't, you know, we haven't analyzed this, we haven't cleaned the data, and we haven't run cross tabs. So y you have to take this with a huge grain of salt. So 77% saying that um, they've posted about Occupy via Facebook. We'll remember that half of these respondents have come via a Facebook group. Um, still, the raw counts are kind of interesting. So we've got, you know, 400 people or almost 10% have written a blog post. Um, oh, sorry, almost 20% written a blog post. Um, almost 10% have uh, produced a video about Occupy. And that 8% number actually fits really well with a lot of other studies of the proportion of people who are active, actually just in general, not in a social movement context, although I know that literature better. Um, so typically, um, you'd have around 10% of people saying that, uh, you know, active in a particular movement, saying that they were involved in producing uh, something that's a high intensive, uh, you know, productive activity, uh, production activity. Uh, like video production. So we just heard last week at Center for Civic Media, uh, we had an interesting conversation about just how many hours it takes to actually do the video production. So th this is to give sort of more fine-grained understanding of what it means when a movement, you say a movement is producing you know, media. Well, it's not the movement. There are particular actors with, within the movement, and it's actually a very small subset that might be involved in a more intensive activity like video production. Um, so let's see, what else? Oh, this is interesting. Uh, in terms of previous political participation, so one of the things that we're also interested in, in, in looking at um, is, you know, is Occupy people's first movement? Is it what politicizes them? And 
It may be for many people, but at least you know, our results indicate that for you know, more than half of them, it's not their first movement. They've participated in other spaces. And this becomes important when we start to think about um, social movement cultures in general uh, and social movement media culture specifically, because part of what happens is you have specific repertoires of contention, which is what uh, you know, sociology-based social movement scholars call uh, really sort of the set of things that movement actors do and consider to be part of the movement activity. So specific tactics, specific modes of working, um, ways of communicating, ways of producing media are things that flow across and between uh, different movement formations over time. And we definitely see that in Occupy. And maybe I'll just skip forward from this, but this is some of our pre preliminary you know, results about um, what types of media people say they use to uh, stay informed about the Occupy movement. And this is never. And this is, uh, the first column is in the last 24 hours. Um, and I think, to me, what kind of stands out here is the, the low, the, the relative low use within this particular, you know, population of, uh, you know, broadcast media, basically. Um, obviously, the relatively high use of social media, although this is interesting. So more than half said they never used Twitter to, you know, stay informed about Occupy. So again, um, you, it may be a situation where you have you know, a smaller number of people who are highly active in particular types of platforms or sites. It's not the case that the whole movement is in one location. So that's important because, as we'll see in a minute, part of what happens and, and is really key to social movement media culture is um, you know, uh, what, what Ethan's talked about in terms of the bridging function or you know, bridge bloggers. In this case, it's not just bridge bloggers, so it's not just sort of taking blogs from one location and moving them into another sort of blogosphere or set of visibility, but it's actually across multiple platforms. So people taking uh, information from one platform and synthesizing it and moving it to another kind of space. And we'll, we'll see that in a minute. So that's a little bit of the survey results. Then in terms of the social media data analysis, so I'm not going to spend much time on this because, um, you know, we've recently had a number of speakers who, uh, you know, know, know much more than I about this, um, but I do think it's, it's useful to kind of highlight a little bit of, of what came out from the Occupy Data Hackathon that we did in, in December. Um, so this was basically an event initiated by Archief, which is a critical code collective uh, based in uh, Los Angeles at the moment, although they have a number of uh, partners um, um, in, in the Middle East. And uh, basically, Archief has spent a lot of time uh, analyzing large data sets, especially Twitter, uh, in the context of the Arab Spring. Um, and they sort of gathered this data set when Occupy kicked off um, of 13 million tweets and then shared that in this multi-day uh, data visualization hackathon event where we had multiple locations. We had a group of people here uh, in Boston at the Media Lab. We had a group in Los Angeles. Um, Gilad Lotan from Social Flow worked with us from New York. Um, we had a team in Utrecht um, of four people participating. And so the idea was that um, people would uh, spend a concentrated set of time focusing on, well, what, what could we do uh, to visualize this data and try and learn something about what's happening uh, in this movement space? And also, how can we share uh, free and open source data visualization and analysis tools um, uh, and spread that knowledge, document it effectively so that more people can participate in this type of work? And so um, we started off with um, a presentation from 
uh, a group in Zaragoza in Spain uh, called Bifi, which isn't loading, but they do a really nice visualization of uh, tweets over time through rep uh, reply networks that basically let you see um, the, uh, the geographic dispersal of the social movement activity during the Spanish 15M movement um, and how it uh, sort of amplifies over time. Um, and so th the point of this is really just that um, the social media data that we have is obviously uh, geolocated at this point in time, so we can understand interesting things about the way that movement networks uh, flow across different geographic locations. Um, this is an experimental visualization using a free open source tool called Gephi um, by the team in Utrecht, which is a visualization of 14 at reply networks uh, of different Occupy hashtags. So it's basically 14 different hashtags from different Occupies. Um, each one is a color. And what you can understand from this is, you know, basically that uh, there are different clusters that overlap to differing degrees. Some of the occupies are closer to each other in terms of the people who are sharing those hashtags, um, you know, than others. And some of them are, are more remote and self-contained. Um, this was a quick visualization of cumulative new occupy hashtag users over time. So this is, you know, you can, you can track the growth of the use of a particular, uh, you know, tag. <laughs> This is Charlie Dittar's uh, Occupy All the URLs uh, visualization of links uh, that were sent around in the tweets, right? So in, that 13, in the 13 million tweets, um, there are 403,702 links. Um, uh, those, are, those are, you know, uh, against the background of mostly non-link tweets. Um, and what we did is we quickly um, kind of looked at them and, uh, you know, eyeballed some categorizations so, you know, images, videos, uh, retweet, uh, uh, links to other tweets, blogs, uh, news, Facebook links, uh, links to Occupy sites, Wikipedia, et cetera. Um, and so Charlie's set up a nice visualization where you can, um, although it's just, you know, e experimental and there's lots of stuff we want to do with it and kind of play with, um, where you can actually look at the type of link content that's being sent around either by um, the number of times it's sent um, or... Um, or, or over time. Um, this, of course, um, is the uh, social flow work that looks at the evolution um, of the Occupy Wall Street hashtag over time. So early on, before the events have really kicked off, you've got a small number of users um, that, um, that then by the time October 13th, which is the day NYPD announces that they're going to be cleaning up uh, Zuccotti Park, uh, has evolved into a more complicated space with new actors like you know, Huffington Post becoming more visible, but you still have some of the original actors like the Occupy Wall Street NYC um, Twitter account is still a, a key player. Um, and he shared some of the tools that, that they've been using. Um, so that's, that's the, the Twitter stuff. Um, there's a lot less on Facebook because it's harder to get access to the data, but there is some good work that's uh, come out. So this is a paper uh, you can download from the Social Science Research Network. Um, this is the reference. Um, and basically, uh, what this is telling you is um, activity on Facebook Occupy pages. And what's kind of interesting about this is, is uh, it shows you that fairly quickly, the majority of the activity on, on Facebook Occupy pages shifted to become local uh, Occupy pages. So on the one hand, you have a really large uh, you know, amount of activity happening on the uh, main sites for Occupy Wall Street. You have a small amount of activity happening uh, on national coordinating uh, sites like the Occupy Together Facebook group, 
but really the majority of it uh, quickly becomes people connecting with their local Occupy. And of course, this is Pablo's um, uh, really interesting visualization of, on the one hand, tweets, and on the other hand, front page newspaper coverage uh, over time. So uh, Pablo uh, is basically, oh, here, I can zoom in with this. So what's, what's interesting to me uh, about looking at this, so you've got the proportion of the front page of the newspapers of record here, um, which are taken up by Occupy coverage, and that's compared to, um, to the tweets, which you can see in the background, and then he's highlighted uh, key events on the bottom here. So you can see the arrest on the Brooklyn Bridge is the first time that you get um, you know, front page coverage, uh, at least in the LA Times. Um, you can see that, um, so the, the things that I like about this, on the one hand, you can see that there's a, there's, a, there's a decent correlation, right? So it's not surprising that moments when there's a lot of coverage happening uh, in the mass media, so 8.8% of the front page of newspapers um, is after the Global Day of Action on the 15th of October. That's also a moment when there's high, high Twitter action. But you can also see sort of a little bit about timing. Um, so you can actually see, uh, this is a really good example. So Occupy Oakland, um, you know, you can see that the Twitter volume starts to really spike at, in real time as Occupy Oakland uh, is displaced, and then the newspaper coverage follows that because it doesn't come out until the next day when the front page of the newspaper, you know, carries the story. So that's an interesting sort of set of tools that we, that we have, which um, the, the newspaper front page analysis, you know, people have been doing that for a long time. We're actually reading this interesting article by Victor San Pedro on uh, media opportunity structures, and he's looking at sort of newspaper analysis in terms of the Spanish anti-draft uh, anti uh, movement. But, you know, it used to take a really long time, and we have interesting new tools that allow us to automate some of it and distribute some of it. And I think that there's a lot of possibility there in terms of taking uh, distributed, open, uh, web-based, and collaborative approaches to doing media analysis, uh, to doing this kind of thing. And so one of the things that we're working on together um, is now taking some of these tools and producing um, basically, you know, public-facing uh, UIs uh, to make it easier for more people to do this type of work. So that's, that's a little bit from, from that set of work. But so, now, so now's the moment where I switch from uh, sort of talking about open distributed methods and thinking about what we have available to us now that we have all the social media data to thinking about what are all the things that we're missing if what we do is focus uh, exclusively on that domain. And I think that the, the answer is that we miss most of what's happening, right? So, uh, again, I'm talking about media culture um, and especially social movement media culture as tools, skills, practices, and norms by which social movement actors create, curate, and circulate media across all the platforms that they have access to. So here's a quote from a member of the, uh, the working group, uh, the media working group in New York City, talking about a typical day in the life of an Occupy Wall Street media activist. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically he narrates this process of moving back and forth between uh, you know, waking up, tweeting, talking with people on the live stream, going down to the camp to check in with what the major events have been, coordinating with the uh, press working group to talk about whether there's things that need to go into the press release that they're going to put out, which is a press release which is targeted to traditional uh, you know, media, so uh, print and broadcast media, um, talking about... Um, 
doing a late night media roundup. So here's that bridging function again. Um, so looking across different spaces, coordinating them into one you know, particular type of post and then recirculating that back out across uh, movement networks and then going back to Brooklyn to try and get a little bit of sleep. So the way that I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'm trying to start by media practices that movement actors are engaged in, which I learn about both by looking at what's happening online, talking with people who are active at, in different you know, aspects of the movement, going down to Occupy Boston, Occupy DC, uh, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Los Angeles. So I went to all of those locations and interviewed and talked to uh, both people who were just kind of, uh, you know, activists involved in different aspects of what was happening, people at general assemblies, and people who are in the uh, media teams and who are actually participating in either uh, media production work, uh, technology uh, setup work, ICT access work, or press, press work especially. Um, and also coordinating with other people who are interested in this similar set of questions and developing shared survey, uh, uh, survey tools or uh, semi-structured interview tools that we can use to gather a broader set uh, of knowledge about that. And so, um, you know, obviously we could, you know, we could sit here all night and talk about the array of media practices that Occupy engages in, so I'll just talk about a couple of them. Um, I'm going to try and, try and finish my talk in the next 15 minutes so that we have enough time to really really discuss. So the people's mic uh, has gotten a lot of visibility. I started the talk with a clip um, of Talib Kweli, um, but I wanted to um, kind of highlight that while the people's mic has been uh, massified and made incredibly visible, uh, both through people's direct participation in it as a social practice and also through its mediation across both uh, you know, web video spaces and in broadcast uh, media, um, it has a long history, right? So. Um, this is a clip uh, that I'm going to play of a megaphone combined with people's mic from the WTO jail solidarity uh, rally in Seattle in 1999. Um, if it ever loads, uh, you'll see Tom Hayden. Um, oh, of course, it doesn't actually give us the moment I'm looking for. So here it is. So you get the idea. So these practices, you know, circulate through movement networks. They're part of the repertoire of contention. They're part of the tactics um, that, in this case, the anti-corporate globalization movement used. And many of the key organizers who were involved in that process then, of course, go on to become not um, um, not trying to reduce, you know, Occupy Wall Street to this pre-existing network of, of, of actors. But there are important links that happen and important, uh, you know, moments where individuals move across and between. Uh, movement, network movement spaces and transport tactics and techniques from one place to another. Um, um, I'll talk, you know, in, in a similar way, uh, we could talk about media teams and working groups. So this is something that, you know, you have, you have a hard time understanding unless you actually went and participated in one of these actions or 
you know, spent some time sort of going, going a little bit deeper, maybe reading uh, stories that people were writing about the way that media production was being organized in the camps, or going down to a camp and, you know, participating in this, or watching videos about it. I'm not saying that it's not uh, highly, you know, mediated and visible, but it's, there's still a general narrative of um, sort of all participants in Occupy Wall Street. It's all these kids with their smartphones and laptops. Everybody's producing media of all kinds, and it's really not the case. Once you actually start to go look into it, there are, you know, groups of people that are dedicated to doing different types of activity, and the media working groups is, is one of them. So um, this is the Occupy Boston uh, media tent. Um, I love this. I'm going to zoom in here. You can't really read it, but so this, this says, um, IRC communication, and it's a, po it's a handwritten poster that's up inside the media tent that explains to people how to use IRC. But raise your hand if you've ever used IRC. Okay, so this is a way more geeky crowd than most, but so IRC is Internet Relay Chat. It's one of the earlier forms of uh, real-time, uh, very lightweight communication. It doesn't take a lot of bandwidth. It's uh, something that's highly, it continues to be highly effective in bandwidth-scarce situations uh, as a way of sort of communicating across multiple locations. So this, this sign says, IRC is a really old, under, old is underscored three times, communication technology that can be awesome. And uh, so one of the things that happens in the media tent is that people take pre-existing experiences um, from uh, hacker culture, from, uh, from, uh, so from software production practices, from pre-existing uh, forms of movement communication, um, and layer them onto the new uh, media ecology. Um, similarly, I want to kind of show this. So, so these are all just basically pictures of you know, different, uh, different media tents from different occupies. Of course, Occupy Wall Street in New York doesn't have a tent because tents weren't allowed. This is, the, uh, this is Vlad Teichberg over here, uh, who's one of the founders of Global Revolution uh, live stream, um, teaching some other people how to do live stream. But what I wanted to show also was um, that similarly, this is a practice that gets imported from other moments of social movement activity. So here's, uh, here's the, uh, basically, it's not a tent, but it's the uh, media crew at the World Social Forum in Brazil in 2009, um, doing similar, engaged in similar types of production practices, skill shares, workshops, um, uh, you know, to cover the events at, at WSF. Here's the G8 in Scotland in 2005 with uh, Reclaim the Media and Indie Media uh, UK. Um, you know, the computers look a little bit different, but basically you get the picture. It's the same type of production practice um, that happens across time and across, and across space. And I didn't have time to find one, but I'm sure if we go back you know, farther, we can find some examples of um, 1960s activists uh, setting up you know, uh, media working groups and camps where they're teaching each other how to mimeograph and you know, that kind of thing as they, as they develop a movement print culture. Um, Live streams. So that's, that's a really interesting component of the media culture in Occupy. Um, not because it's something that's never happened before, again. Um, so, you know, here's uh, Deep, Deep Dish TV in 1986. This is folks who were involved in the, found, the founding of uh, cable access TV, engaged in this whole process to actually win uh, city by city, uh, literally hundreds of contracts that got people access to production facilities and video training and access to uh, uh, cable television. Um, they also uh, created a, a satellite network called uh, Deep Dish TV where they would air real-time coverage of uh, mobilization activity. Of course, at the time, it required raising huge amounts of money um, to get a satellite truck and 
purchase time, uh, you know, on a network. Um, so it's not that, you know, real real time movement controlled coverage of uh, mass mobilizations is something that's totally new. Um, but it obviously gets much, much easier over time as the digital media tools and skills become more affordable, more accessible, uh, spread to more people in the population. Uh, in our, at the Repu Republican National Convention in 2008, we have the Uptake, which is a citizen media organization uh, based in the Twin Cities that does um, uh, fairly visible, real-time uh, streaming coverage of the protests there using smartphones. Um, uh, and then in, in 2011, they, they do live streaming from uh, the Wisconsin mobilizations around the anti-union bill there. Um, and they actually raised a bunch of money for it um, on Spot Us. Um, so that's a, sort of, again, sort of, you know, hybrid forms um, linking different kinds of coverage. And, and they also connect to their local uh, cable access TV station. So previous, um, you know, movement uh, networks get, uh, you know, win, win victories and spaces, uh, which then get taken advantage of by, uh, by, by later actors. And the reason why it's important to highlight the uptake is because uh, Vlad Teichberg, who's, uh, again, so he's one of the co-founders of Global Revolution TV, which was getting uh, during, uh, at moments when there were uh, major mobilizations happening or heavy police repression, Global Revolution TV is getting um, uh, maybe seven, 8,000 simultaneous uh, viewers. And during the course of a day, um, around 80, 90,000 unique viewers. Um, so again, it's not broadcast television, but it's fairly respectable um, to have you know, 8,000 simultaneous viewers on a social movement action um, that you're streaming from your smartphone. And what's interesting about this story is that Vlad um, was, in, uh, was in the Twin Cities in 2008, um, working out of a shared uh, media center with folks from the uptake who did trainings. Um, I was actually there as well, working with a group called uh, Eyewitness um, did trainings for a lot of us on how do you use smartphones to do live streaming coverage of mobilizations. So again, these techniques sort of spread across time um, and across locations. I'll skip that video. And of course, uh, here we have uh, Charlie Dutar uh, Occupy Streams map. So what, what's interesting is these pre-existing practices become massified, become part of the general practices of social movement culture. So it goes from being something they that's mar marginal and takes lots of so time and energy and resources to being something that can spread you know, fairly quickly across locations. And I don't have time to do it now, but if you kind of click through here, this is uh, Charlie's really nice implementation of pulling, uh, pulling all the uh, real-time feeds that are up from uh, occupystreams.org and giving you a map interface for them, which they've actually now incorporated on their site. Uh, print, I'll, I'll skip quickly because I'm, I'm really low on time here, but just to say, obviously, you know, the, the Occupied Wall Street Journal has gotten a lot of visibility. It, it's both a vehicle for uh, people to participate in print production practices and also it's something that becomes a news hook. So there's a lot of stories about the Occupied Wall Street Journal um, and that also then is something that gets taken up across the country and a lot of different occupies generate their own print publications. So this is the Boston Occupier um, sort of hot off the presses. But again, this is something where um, you have these interesting kind of networks, both of the pre-existing practices, but also particular individuals who move from one movement network space into another. So the Independent is the print publication of the New York Center, uh, sorry, the New York City Independent Media Center. Um, it started in 2001. There are archives going back, I think, to 2002. And there's uh, one of the editors of the Independent, Arun Gupta, uh, is one of the people who uh, co-founds the working group of the Occupied Wall Street Journal uh, when Occupy kicks off. So people 
who have a particular uh, set of skills and have a lot of experience producing print publications in other movement contexts um, become not necessarily the only actors. Certainly the whole point here is to, through skill shares and face-to-face uh, you know, -face ongoing meetings to share, generalize, and open the process of movement communication to more actors and to socialize a new generation of people into these uh, you know, different types of techniques at the same time as new tools and platforms are being developed. But um, there are threads that move, uh, you know, move between them in movement media culture. And of course, you know, we, could, we could go on here all day. There are apps, there's Occupy Design, there's films, there's broadcast. But I'll just you know, stop there with that kind of piece. Um, you know, any one of these is a rabbit hole that you can go down into. And, and I encourage you to, if you haven't already, a lot of really interesting, innovative, creative stuff that happens here. Um, there's a whole other paper that I'm writing about the infrastructure piece, which is sort of the development of alternative infrastructures and the tensions between appropriating commercial spaces for uh, movement communication and developing uh, autonomous spaces. And I actually think that the way that it's been thought about um, for the most part is o overly simplistic and doesn't really look at the dynamic between um, sort of uh, this set of uh, specialists or experienced movement communication activists who tend to participate in both of these kinds of spaces or maybe spend more time in the autonomous spaces, but then some of them also do this bridging function. Um, and what happens as people come in around the edges of a movement in terms of appropriating uh, commercial spaces. But I think it's a, it's a really interesting uh, space to look, look a lot more closely and, and, and a lot more deeply. Um, so um, the last piece of what I want to do is talk about, so within this, this field of practices that are taking place, um, what, what I'm talking about as, as, as one of many characteristics of a social movement media culture. So I think there's a lot of ways. So I've talked about Occupy. What I'm inviting everybody to do is, is to think about how, as you think about how movement, the movement media nexus works, is one, to do multi-method approaches, and two, um, to start thinking in a comparative sense across different movement locations, times, and spaces, and think about how could we characterize a social movement media culture. And I think there's probably lots of different you know, variables that we could use to characterize a social movement media culture. One that is particularly interesting to me is open and closed. Um, and so in a sort of brief extractive process from what I found from this different you know, set of, 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 of ways of looking at Occupy, um, I've generated this way of thinking about it, which is in terms of teams, transparency, experts, amplification, messaging, and standing. So very quickly, transparency is a question about what are the movement's mechanisms for internal and external transparency in decision making, right? So by this measure, we've got a lot of really interesting, radically open components of transparency in the Occupy movement, starting from the GAs, the general assemblies, where decision making you know, happens and open working groups with the principle that anyone can kind of step in and participate and decide, all the way to uh, open technologies, so open, open notes, um, so putting all notes on wikis and on Google Docs, sometimes in real time, and sharing them visibly so that anyone who's interested in learning about decision making can do that, live streaming the GAs. At the same time, there are tensions towards closed, right? So security culture, especially as the raids start to, start to happen, as uh, people start to have concerns about police infiltrators, as camps get shut down, you start to have a lot of you know, the language about um, 
well, we're being observed and surveilled and there are infiltrators and, you know, I think this person is FBI and you have sort of the rise of general security culture, which may not be unfounded, but introduces components of closed communication and decision-making uh, practices. You have the tyranny of structurelessness, which is identified by the classic article of the same name by Joe Freeman uh, about the women's movement, which is the idea that um, when you're theoretically doing things in an open consensus-based approach, um, uh, and those who know how to game that particular type of system, um, which tend to be people who are structurally advantaged in other kinds of ways, so educational advantage, comfort speaking, men, um, white people, um, tend, to, tend to sort of dominate. Um, so there are always structures, and if you call them flat, they're not really flat just because you're calling them flat. Um, so that's just a little bit of you know, some of the, uh, and, and sorry, as Occupy sort of goes on and on, you also have this dynamic, which is the egos of occupiers, the idea of the hardcore movement participants. You know, I've, I sleep here every night. I should really be the one who makes the decision. Um, and that's something that we see again and again in different kinds of movements. This isn't unique to Occupy. Um, experts, so this is a question about, are there media and communication experts, uh, you know, sort of working in the movement? And I actually think that the answer is always gonna be yes. Um, but so then the question becomes, what are the accountability mechanisms? So is it a situation where the media experts in the movement are the ones who get to determine all the messaging um, without accountability to the base or some type of democratic decision-making process? Um, or are there accountability mechanisms that link what they're saying uh, to what the movement wants? In this case, there's, there's uh, Occupy, I think, does pretty well because on the one hand, you do have a lot of people with a lot of media production skills who are producing highly visible messaging, but you also have a number of instances where um, somebody tries to present a slick message, call it Occupy, it hasn't been through the formal decision-making processes of, say, like the General Assembly, um, and so it gets called out and shut down. And this happened recently with a group that tried to call for a July 4th National Occupy Convention in Philadelphia, um, which didn't go through any sort of you know, formal uh, consensus process and got sort of called out by the movement and is now rapidly sort of you know, losing steam based on the fact that there is an accountability mechanism there. Amplification mechanisms, you know, what are they? And especially, what steps does the movement take to lift up the voices of participants in positions of structural disadvantage, right? Um, in Occupy, there are some formal mechanisms, like people of color working groups. Um, there's the emergence of Occupy the Hood, which is, you know, conscious attempts to address the whiteness of Occupy um, and to broaden the base of the supposed 99%. Um, you have procedural modifications, like progressive stack, so this is the idea that when you're doing a general assembly and you're taking stack, that women and people of color would be moved up in the line so that their voices could be heard more frequently. And you have lots of informal mechanisms. And you also have sort of the appropriation of existing um, corporate platforms uh, to use as amplification mechanisms for uh, media that's produced by the movement base. So I wanted to highlight Occupy Spots, which is an interesting uh, attempt to do that. Um, so Occupy Spots, um, they're using LoudSauce, um, which is a social media site where uh, you can sort of uh, crowd produce uh, ads and then raise money to place them on broadcast television. And they manage uh, in the first stage of Occupy to raise $20,000 to place this spot uh, in, in, in circulation on a number of different broadcast uh, TV channels. And they're now uh, entering into a new cycle of fundraising and production um, for April. This is the spot they aired. 
pretty widely. So this is really interesting, right? So this was, although the, although it was it was aired on national broadcast, uh, you know, television, and uh, it has this Occupy Together, you know, link at the end. There was a really interesting conversation that happened where the people who put this together didn't actually work closely with the OccupyTogether.org uh, sort of uh, working group and site maintainers. Um, so there's a whole kind of back and forth around. Um, you know, basically people coming out of the woodwork to engage in different types of media production and and highly visible amplification processes to support other components of the movement that they weren't even necessarily in direct uh, conversation with. So that's, I think, a sort of interesting little, little story about amplification inside Occupy. These actually, I think, should be combined, messaging and standing. Standing is actually more of a metric of messaging. So the, the question that I have here, which I think should be applied to, again, to any movement that you're studying, um, is do the movement norms encourage participants to speak for themselves? Are they supposed to stay on message when they speak? Um, or are they told not to speak at all? And I think this looks very different when you look across different movements and different types of movement formations. Um, so especially if you look at more sort of professionalized movement uh, sectors, if you look at um, sort of more traditional top-down uh, incorporated uh, nonprofits with professional staff, you get a lot of conversation internally right now especially about the tension between message control and the social media space, where you have um, you know, uh, communication staff at professional uh, nonprofit organizations affiliated with a particular uh, you know, movement tendency saying, ba basically freaking out because they don't understand how they can engage their base in social media spaces while still retain uh, message control. And so there's lots of different ways that people address that. It includes you know, doing trainings on this is how you stay on message. Um, and that's something that actually happened within Occupy, but in a way that, that I think is, is, again, it sort of indicates Occupy's ability to lean towards open, um, which is um, systematic trainings at many different local Occupy sites around how to talk to the media, but not about what to say to the media. And that's something that I think is, is a really interesting distinction um, that was made very explicit and clear by a lot of people in the press working groups of the Occupy movement. Um, so it was basically, how do you talk in sound bites? How do you avoid some of the traps uh, that media often, uh, that, that broadcast journalists often, uh, or, or what might be thought of as a trap if your perspective is you're an occupier trying not to be roped into a discussion about um, uh, violence, property destruction, or what is your demand? Um, so basically, these, these trainings, which con in contrast to many traditional movement uh, press trainings, which are about these are the talking points, it was about these are the strategies for developing your own talking points. So that was an interesting sort of open strategy. Standing is uh, actually a measure of the diversity of spokespeople. So this is a concept that um, we're talking a lot about in my uh, network social movements class, at least la uh, you know last week. Um, so this is most effectively articulated by uh, Mira Marx-Ferry and a group of, of scholars who produced a book called Shaping Abortion Discourse that compares the US and Germany and 
uh, again, I want to have time for discussion, so I, I won't go into it, but basically um, they analyzed 30 years of uh, print coverage of uh, d uh, the discourse around abortion, and they identify uh, at the utterance level, not just what is the article about, but within every article uh, that talks about abortion, who got to speak. And they look at the gender, the organization they're affiliated with, were they a representative of a political party? Did they represent a social movement organization? Um, is it the same person over time, or are there multiple people? So they have this incredible data set, and I'm kind of encouraging all of us to think about how could we do this using some of the new tools that we have, and really think about this question of standing, and say, well, this is a measure of a particular social movement formation's openness or closeness in terms of the diversity of spokespeople, in terms of the, the social movement media culture uh, could be said to be leaning towards open or closed based on the diversity uh, of those who you can measure in terms of standing when they appear in, in uh, especially in print and broadcast media, which is what reaches most people. Um, and uh, this was just an interesting quote from someone from an Occupy Wall Street Press working group member about the interface with the press. Um, I have other quotes about, you know, when you put on a suit and tie that, you know, you immediately get talked to by the press. And so there are ways that you can guide and shape uh, standing. And so savvy social movements that want to lean towards open can use these strategies um, not in the traditional sense to always become the one voice of the movement, but to actually attract uh, attention from journalists who are working for print or broadcast media and then guide them towards um, you know, a diversity of spokespeople. So conclusions. I think I've already you know, repeated them multiple times. So use a diversity of methods. Movements are rich and complex in the, in the media cultures they develop. Um, the media ecology is changing fast, and that gives us access to new tools and new data sources, but it's still important to look, uh, you know, not just at, at, at the types of data we get from the new tools. Um, we also need to pay attention to the depth of experience that shapes social movement media cultures, as well as new kinds of tactical innovation that movement actors engage in. Um, and I've identified this open and closed logics, but there are many other logics that we might use to characterize movement media cultures. Um, but really, it's, it's a great moment to care about this question. Um, you know, the current global cycle of struggles uh, is, is uh, unique. It's a, it is a historic moment uh, that looks different than anything that we've seen for, for decades. So for those of you who are interested in uh, <laughs> civic media broadly and social movement media uh, specifically, uh, it's, it's a good time, and I encourage you to, um, I don't know, take some of, some of these ideas or methods or tools and work in open, distributed forms so that we can get, uh, you know, more, more uh, interesting understandings of, of these processes. And that's that. So. <laughs>
a bit more of a historical perspective, and I, I'm just thinking of some examples, and so I want to give some examples and then ask, I guess, maybe a, a clarifying question about how you're defining media culture. Um, so just very quickly, I can think of social movements that made use of media, for example, end of the 19th century, um, new journalistic newspapers um, engaging in various reform activities in New York City. Um, early 20th century pacifists using the formation of radio stations like KPFA in, in California to oppose um, U.S. involvement in World War I. Um, underground newspapers in the 60s um, or sort of mid-20th century as part of forming a counterculture and, and, and social movements then. Or finally, advocacy journalism at the end of the 20th century using print and broadcast um, forms uh, in order to create um, a sort of alternative press or, or, or broadcast media that can be um, uh, promoting certain issues, often progressive issues. Um, and in all of those cases, I think the thing that I, I guess I've always thought of them as, as movements, social movements that made use of media uh, in order to promote their cause. But it seems like by, by using the term social movement media culture, it's sort of like you're taking it one step further to say that the social movement itself is centered on media. And so I think what I'm wondering is, is there something, are you, are, are you thinking that maybe there's something different with social media now that changes the nature of, way, of the way a movement itself happens um, or, 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 or not? Is there, is there a major difference there or not? And I think I'm asking a sort of clarifying question because I'm not sure myself. I mean, I think I could take this concept and turn it back to these other, other examples and say, okay, well, maybe there was a media culture, although I think I've always just thought of it as a, a social movement that had media as one part of its culture. Do you see what I mean? So I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, so, no, it's a great question. I mean, so first I think I should clarify that by using the term social movement media culture, I'm not trying to imply that I think that um, Occupy or any other movement is primarily about media and okay. mediation. So in other words, if we zoomed out from this uh, diagram that I had, there would be all these other components. So we could talk about, um, you know, we could, uh, a whole talk about the, the, the food tents at Occupy, right? And the whole, the histories of, uh, food, you know, food not bombs, um, where many of the local food not bombs actors were the ones who set up the food tents, or the history of street medics, um, which has its own sort of you know thing going back to the you know anti-war movement against the Vietnam War. Um, There's a great article about it actually in Boston Phoenix recently about the history of street medics. So any one of the different types of uh, activity that's happening within Occupy has its own so history. So we could talk about like social movement food culture or social movement uh, health cultures and, and you know each each one of these could be its own whole sort of domain of study so I just want to clarify that at the same time yes I do think there's something special about uh, media culture and I think that there is something different and new um, at the same time as I think we need to focus also on on the continuities right so one of the things that I think is interesting and new and different is that while um, I do think that if you actually start looking back through time you'll find uh, what what scholars used to call small media production as being a really key component of movement activity at, at all times, in all, in all movements and locations, at least in modern social movements. Um, so, you know, people producing posters, producing uh, papers, producing graffiti, producing pins, like there are, there are large numbers of, of different types of strategies that movement participants have used, not all of them uh, requiring really high, you know, skill levels. Um, so yes, it was the case that you had uh, 
you know, particular people on the you know, information committee, right, who are producing the paper for the movement. And you might have only had one paper because it's, it was expensive to do and it required a highly specialized, you know, set of skills. But you did have a larger number of people, you know, producing Mimeo sheets or whatever. So I do think that, that, that one question is how do we understand all the diverse forms of media production that happen in a movement context? I, I do think that there's something about media production um, which is constitutive of the formation of movement subjectivity. And it's something that I think we need to do a lot more research on uh, in terms of applying different types of methods uh, to understanding just what that looks like, what the effect is, how powerful it is. Um, but certainly we can say that as digital media literacies and the access to new ICTs spread more broadly throughout the population than ever before, we're shifting from, you know, uh, from, from print literacy, which initially was just read print literacy, to read write print literacy, to read uh, media literacies of other kinds, to read write media literacies. And what I'm talking about uh, now is in another article is a shift to read write execute digital media literacies, which says that we have enough people now who are familiar with these skills that they're able not only to critically evaluate uh, media, but actually uh, remix and produce uh, media that articulates the movement goals that they have, and that in that process, um, they're also increasingly learning how to um, link that media production to concrete, other kinds of concrete media, media action, sorry, other types of concrete action. So how do you effectively use uh, digital media production and circulation as a tactic that can engage people in real world uh, actions, be those street protests, uh, money donations, call-ins. Um, maybe I'm going a little too far afield here, but, uh, but I, I think the answer is yes and no. It's always been there. It used to be called small media. Now we're talking about it in terms of social media, which is, has different technical affordances, is much more visible, and we can study it much more easily. I think it's always been a part of, of, of movements. Right, and just really quickly as a comment, not a question, but I think I would, I would add to what you're saying and just say that perhaps the interesting question or the way to look at what the difference really is is to ask how does, how does social media come back at the people who are involved in it to shape the way they're thinking about action in the first place? So it's not just a tactic, but it's a way of, of, of shaping the way they're conceptualizing their action um, uh, to start with. And I think that's where you could find some very interesting differences between now and a, a print-based social media movement culture, social movement media culture. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Sasha. Really interesting. Um, I, I want to follow up on this question as well, because I, I, maybe I'm hung up on the media culture word, too. Um, but it, it's very interesting. One of the things I guess I'm, I'm wondering, and just play devil's advocate, I suppose, is that I, I get a little bit of the picture like the, if we pursue this kind of research, then we identify different kinds of movements that have different kinds of media cultures, and that we want better media cultures, which I'm assuming is open. You know, I guess in this model, I'm guessing open is good, closed is bad, and, and maybe that's, that's too simplistic. But uh, what I'm wondering, though, is, is even just with these examples here, it's such a diversity, in fact, of different strategies and approaches uh, that people are taking. Uh, and that at one level, I, I thought, well, media practices that work, is, isn't that what you really want to get at here rather than 
sort of the, like, I'm trying to imagine if we have a perfect media culture, is that when we'll know we'll have a good movement? And, and I don't see that happening, I guess. And so rather, we're going to have social movements with a diversity of practices. Don't then want, we want to identify those practices that do this make media, make trouble feedback loop that creates better social movement people because they make media and then they become more sensitive to using that media in effective ways. And I, and I guess that's where, for me, the word media culture does this kind of totalizing thing as if it, it's everything in it and then it's got good points, bad points. Aren't, it seems to me that wouldn't you be better off talking about the practices that are good and, and seem to push this in the right directions and and does media culture take us away from that? I, I guess that's, that's what I'm asking. Does that make any sense? <laughs> I'm, so I can, see, I can see already that I'm going to have to do additional work to really clarify that um, I'm not trying to encompass uh, social movement activity, what I think is most important about social movement activity by focusing on social movement media cultures. I'm just trying to talk about the relationship between social movements and, uh, and the media ecology in a more complicated way than I think a lot of people are talking about it. So maybe part of what I need to do is really be more explicit in the framework that I'm laying out around you know, different aspects of social movements, how people have analyzed them, and then the role that you know, media production specifically plays. Like, I don't think that media production is the most important thing in a movement, um, despite the fact that I've been involved that, in that in the past as both a practitioner and as a scholar, and despite the fact that I'm here at the Center for Civic Media trying to figure, you know, think up you know, ways that we can do that and do it really effectively, I actually think there's lots of times and places where Something might be entirely unmediated, but it's, uh, it's an incredibly powerful you know, movement action that wins something really, really concrete. Um, so I don't know if that sort of uh, addresses some of the initial concern. I do think I'm also, I'm curious to hear what other people think about, OK, so social movement media culture and social movement media practices. Um, again, as I said, this is exploratory, and I'm trying to develop this, this paper and this work, and maybe social movement media culture is a terrible term, and I should really just call it practices, well, and, fo practices. and focus on. Well, well, I'm not interested. At this point, I'm not doing a normative thing. Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm well, no, <laughs> no. I, I really, I'm actually interested in what people do, right? So what I'm trying to do here is map a terrain um, through a, a wide diversity of, of methods, um, and I'm trying to encourage other people to do that too, and I think that that's important work to do. Yeah, um, we can we can get normative after there, that. I didn't say that. I said this this paper is an attempt to map the terrain in a way that I think is a little <laughs> bit more complicated. Ethan. I think there is actually a really useful distinction between culture and practice, and I'll, I'll give an example by saying. Mostly to be a pain in the ass, I've been sitting and Googling for Tea Party examples for every practice we've gone through here. Uh -huh. And I've been able to find almost direct parallels for almost every one. Uh, actually, it's kind of wonderful. There, there's a, uh, a, a, a Tea Party map that actually sort of closely parallels, you know, Charlie's map and sort of other maps. You know, the, there's print publications, there's online publications. It's very, very interesting to see how that movement has gone through the media. There's also a small group at UNC that's doing mixed method, phone survey, in-person survey, et cetera, trying to look at this. And, and what that strikes me is there's the possibility that what we're starting to see 
in your work out of Occupy is the emergence of best practices that may be sort of independent of the culture that develops them. So I, I think what was particularly wonderful about this analysis, Sasha, is that you're coming back and rooting much of this within progressive movements in the United States, and some of them international, but largely in some cases pulling this back to earlier U.S. progressive movements, which strikes me very much as a culture, right? A culture that's continued. When we look at things like Deep Dish TV, there are likely people who are involved with that project who have gone on to be involved with Occupy. We can imagine that sort of carrying through. We could test to what extent is this culture versus to what extent is this sort of emergent best practice. Uh, certainly there's the possibility that the left and right are looking closely at each other's organizing tactics, but there's also the possibility that there are certain techniques that sort of evolve as likely best practices at a particular moment to sort of exploit what's out there in the media culture. So as you and I have talked about before, I'm really, really interested in sort of taking some of the methods and the questions that you're asking and trying to apply it both left-right within the U.S. and sort of more broadly around movements. But I think the culture-practice distinction might be very helpful to think about actually how those practices come into play. So I apologize for uh, taking out a word of interject, but I thought it might be helpful. In that question. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, great, a great comment, and I think it's really interesting. Um, so where this starts to get really, really interesting, and this is what I'm encouraging us all to do, is when we start to apply this type of uh, methodological approach, and maybe this framework, or maybe some components of this framework, which has to be blown apart and, and restructured. But when we start to apply them across different movement formations, different times, different locations, um, that's where we're going to start getting really interesting work on on movement media. Whereas what we have right now is a lot of sort of thin description, um, you know, pulling out an existing sort of data set and making sort of facile, you know, comments about what you're observing or individual case studies that might be really deep and rich, um, but don't have a lot of analytical power. Um, and so, I mean, so for example, I would, I would hypothesize, although it's a, it's a really interesting question, um, the things that would be different between what you would find in the Tea Party movement and what you would find in Occupy, that would be a big sort of signpost for, oh, this is really interesting. So if we did try and run a matrix, and I actually think I, I'm, I'm not in the least surprised that any one of the particular platforms or media practices, um, well, platforms, I'll stick with platforms. I'm not at all surprised that any of the platforms would be used by any particular uh, you know, mov movement activist. I would be surprised if you found um, consensus-based uh, general assemblies and decision-making happening within Tea Party, although maybe I'm wrong. That's a very yeah. interesting metric you suggested about who gets to speak Right. It's possible you could actually end up with a very high degree of that within Tea Party because you do have that high degree of decentralization, 565 different groups, all of whom were speaking in different things. Right. So, so that, to me, would be interesting, actually, on the cultural test. Yeah, absolutely. This, well, the standing piece would be interesting. So, so one question is, are the movement actors who get standing um, more diverse than the uh, political parties or the agents that they're trying to pressure? Another question would be, what do they look like compared to the general population? So you could look at measures of like standing parity. I think Occupy would do terribly on this measure right now, and it's one of the things that they've been trying to work on. So actually, probably Occupy would do uh, okay on gender and really terribly on race and ethnicity if you actually uh, did some standing metrics around who's getting visibility in mass media. I actually know that right now there's a big debate happening as a number of people try and produce the definitive Occupy film, which there are many uh, competing groups trying to do that right now. 
um, some of which have been heavily funded on Kickstarter and others of which are scrapping things together. Um, there was, there was a big sort of debate happening recently where the initial rushes, so the early footage that people were looking at uh, of one of these groups that got a lot of funding, um, it was like interview after interview with, uh, with, of young white men. Um, and so there was a big sort of back-channel debate in Occupy around, you know, this cannot be the, you know, the representation of the 99%, even if, even if Occupy is around 80% white, which actually that's most of the, there are multiple surveys that have been done and most of them are looking at a, at a number around that level. Um, Occupy is also trying to be prefigurative and aspirational and is trying uh, to project a mediated image which may not uh, be the real currently existing makeup of the movement um, as part of a, a, a strategic, strategic approach to broaden the base, right? And so you really don't want to generate this film that's going to be seen really widely um, that's just going to replicate the existing um, you know, uh, lack of participation by people of color in the, in the movement. So I, I do think that the Tea Party stuff might not look so great on those kind of metrics either. Jing? All right. Um, so um, I, I'm interested in, well, I, I enjoy the mapping. And I think the discussion about whether we should, you should be focusing on the analysis of media culture or media best practices implies something that sort of taking you outside of the movement uh, as a third party looking in. But I'm interested in uh, your, the challenges you encountered. You as a media studies researcher, theorist, and an activist at the same time. So I'm interested in finding out you talking about all this uh, as being a member within the movement. Um, having a hybrid identity, what kind of challenges that you encountered because you are a hybrid? Mm. Yeah, so I have a complicated you know, relationship to Occupy in the sense that I don't necessarily identify as an occupier, although I feel like I spent lots of time supporting the Occupy movement, uh, primarily at this, this point through you know, spending time early on in Occupy Boston, doing some skill shares with people around different you know, media production tools and technologies, and then later through trying to organize Occupy Research Network specifically to address this question of how can movements do a better job of actually understanding themselves. And so Occupy Research on the one hand is an attempt to apply a lot of the interesting sort of uh, new and old tools and methods that we have, uh, but it's also very explicitly an attempt to um, uh, more broadly socialize good research skills uh, through a movement network. And so, for example, in the next step in the Occupy Research uh, General Demographic and Political Participation Survey is we've, we're recoding all of the responses that people had about what camp they participated in um, so that we're breaking the data set down into um, chunks by camp. And then we're contacting people from each camp uh, at which point we will then walk people through workshops on how do you analyze and visualize data uh, with the idea being that if you, if you believe that you want to have a better picture of where you are so that you can figure out how to get to a more inclusive, more diverse, uh, more democratic movement, um, you should really be using some metrics uh, of different kinds. Um, and, and so one of the things we're going to do is, is, is again, try and try and broaden that base of people who have that set of skills in the same way that um, any working group within Occupy might be uh, trying to teach more people how to prepare yummy vegan food for a thousand people a night or um, 
use over-the-counter medication to help people who've been beaten by police or any, you know, any of the other sort of working groups that are there. So um, I guess that's kind of an, an invocation of people to not necessarily think of your role as scholar and researcher. I mean, look, this is a, this is a, long, this is a big debate, right? This is a long debate in the academy. Um, there is by now a very large and significant and I think fairly respected camp of people who are in the academy but who talk about engaged research and grounded research and research uh, from within a community of practice. So I actually don't think it's really that radical uh, to encourage people to do social movement research from within a movement. And that's, that applies regardless of what what movement we're talking about, really. Like, I actually would encourage someone who was a Tea Party supporter who wanted to understand, you know, well, since this is comparative media studies, you know, media use in the Tea Party movement, to spend lots of time with the Tea Party and work as a Tea Party advocate and uh, be there within the movement so that the stuff you write about, how it works, is actually really grounded and reflects reality rather than just reflects, um, you know, uh, some conceptions that you extract from mass media coverage or whatever, or social media analysis for that matter. So I, I believe in grounded research, and I think it's uh, it's uh, it's possible to do to do it well, um, and still uh, have that identity as a as a movement participant. There's a shadow side to this, which is people who don't get involved, people who try to get involved and can't. So, for instance, I was interested in. Um, May, uh, in contributing to Occupy by talking about s small scale solar and other things and making it more sustainable, which was a stream within the. I've talked, I talked to people in New York, I talked to people in Boston, I talked to people in Providence, but there was absolutely no pickup on that idea. I contacted everybody that I could whose name that I could get from the media. I went down to the sites and tried to get involved. And what I found was this kind of idea that I'm preparing for the next thing in the next 15 minutes, so I can't talk to you now. So there's communication and there's media, but there's also a barrier, it seems to me. And it would be interesting to talk about what those barriers are and how to get around them or through them or within them. So actually, one of the questions, our, one of our political participation questions, um, because the survey was answered both by people who identified as occupiers and by, uh, by, by about 3,000 of those people and about 2,000 people who didn't consider themselves occupiers. And one of our political participation questions is, um, what, what were your top three barriers to participating in the Occupy movement? Um, and so that's an open-ended uh, question with you know three responses, and we're actually now in the process of coding that data. So one of the things about open-ended questions on surveys is that then, it, where you get thousands of respondents, is then you have you know lots and lots of text to go through and try and you know make sense of. So um, the things that people said, I wish I actually had a word cloud of it, um, which we, we did run already. People said um, time was the biggest one. Uh, people didn't have time. People said fear which was interesting. People said police. Um, people said, um, and, people, and, and there were a number of people who said things like, you know, tried to, you know, failed to communicate. So I think that was also a significant, you know, chunk of what happened there. So um, 
I'm not sure if that's useful to you, but we are we are trying to understand that question. I mean, in terms of the specific, the specifics of what you're mentioning. I mean, I do know that you know many occupies did end up implementing some type of small scalar solar, and actually here at MIT there was specifically one of the contributions of MIT students was to develop a number of alternative energy, uh, you know, uh, methods for Occupy Boston. So there was bike power, and there was small scale small-scale solar and that kind of stuff. When so, you talk about fear, police, time, and all those kinds of things, those were not the issues. The issues were, were trying to break through to, to a contact where you could actually do work. Mm -hmm. And I was not able to do that. And I suspect that there were a number of other people who were not able to do that. Maybe because it was one of your things, time. We didn't spend enough time down at the sites in particular. but. I was kind of disappointed that there was no feedback, that I would email people whose, whose names I, and emails addresses that I garnered who were working on this stuff and said, here, here's some other stuff, here's what I know what's going on. And there was, and there was absolutely no follow-up. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, without knowing you know, more specifics of, of what happened, I'm sure that many people had that experience. And I think that that probably happens in many movements. And that would be really interesting. I mean, we're, we're trying to get at that in a more generalized sense with that set of questions. But it would also, this is exactly what I was saying before. Like, So it's one thing to have this data set of 2,000 people explaining why they didn't get involved. It's another thing to do in-depth interviews with people about particular narratives of, you know, I went down three times, I tried, and I couldn't find anyone who, you know, who wanted to talk to me. Or you know couldn't couldn't connect, so that's another way of understanding you know movement growth and lack of growth cycles, and I think that that's something that any movement has to struggle with. So, so uh, caveat to start with, this is a domain with which I'm not tremendously familiar. So if there's some assumed you know kind of philosophies that I'm that I'm missing, I apologize. Um, but I was struck by your example of the um, television ad that was paid for and broadcast on mainstream television. And it made me think about the, the kind of boundary between the pragmatic use of media and the ideology um, that might undermine that use because no media is neutral, right? I mean, the, even something like Twitter has a lot of kind of realities around it, including whether it's internet access or phone access, how you get your cell service, how you get your internet service, and all of these kind of realities that are around it. So I, I'm wondering if as you're doing this, is there just kind of an assumption that if we have an objective um, and there's an available tool, um, I mean, to what extent do you have to rectify kind of an ideology against the pragmatism of this tool is useful? Um, does that make any sense? Um, I, I think so. So, um, so this is a, the other paper that I'm writing about um, the IRC theory of, of uh, digital activism, which is the one that goes more deeply into um, trying to uh, complicate the notion that everybody just appropriates corporate social media sites. And that's awesome for lots of reasons, which it is. But that uh, one of the other things that happens, especially in a movement like Occupy, and in fact more in a movement like Occupy than almost anything else we've seen, is that you have a lot of people get politicized around the political economy of communication by participating in the movement. They, you know, The first time that you go to a mass action, you get beaten up by a cop, and then you go look at the nightly news, and you see the way that it's framed and covered. That the, the being beaten up by a cop part politicizes people about the role that the state plays uh, in liberal democracies. The way that it's framed on the nightly news politicizes people about the function that broadcast media uh, plays in sustaining hegemonic ideology. So 
one thing that happens is that people start to think more critically about different media platforms and the function that they play in maintaining power. And that goes for social media sites as well. So one of the things we saw in Occupy, of course, is like lots of debates. Actually, you know, Gilad Lotan has a great you know, piece about this. It's, not, it's probably not true, but you have lots of people discussing, you know, oh, Twitter is, censor, is censoring Occupy hashtags. Well, it turns out probably not. Probably what was happening is it's just really hard to trend when you're competing with, you know, with popular culture. But, um, but you have people start to have that conversation and start to also then discuss, okay, what are the things that are happening when I'm participating in corporate controlled social media sites? Okay, I'm, um, I'm potentially being censored with no recourse. I'm being surveilled. I'm being advertised to. My information is being tracked and monitored and handed, handed over to the state. Um, you know, all people start to look, think about all of these things in a, you know, critically. And so then on the other side of that, in a movement like Occupy, you have increasing numbers of people engaging in hackathons and coding sessions and development to build alternative infrastructures. In the Spanish case, it's, you have more success than, than anywhere. So in the, in the Spanish uh, Take the Squares movement, uh, they set up a uh, free, open source, autonomous, federated, decentralized social networking site called uh, N1 and uh, has 130, I, I don't know, has ten, at least tens of thousands, if not. Uh, did you, Pablo, do you know how many people are in? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember if it's 37,000 or 137,000 people within like the first, you know, month or something. But so basically you have people setting up, you know, autonomous, you know, open spaces. There's attempts to do a similar thing, you know, through Occupy. The, 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 the drawback there is, you know, when you create autonomous spaces, um, they can be shut down and nobody knows except for the people who are participating in those autonomous spaces. The advantage is that you actually control them both uh, in terms of where the, who's in, who gets the information about their use um, and in terms of uh, whether they become you know, commercialized, whether they become part of, you know, whether they're monetized, whether advertising is fed to people as they use them. And um, you get to develop new affordances uh, if you have the technical capacity, which is a big question mark. But if you do have people in your network who can do that, um, you can build tools that do new things that no one's ever done before uh, that might be based on the needs of a particular uh, you know, moment in, a, in, a, in movement history. So I, I don't know if that is getting it. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I, I think I brought this up at a colloquium last semester, but uh, I'm sort of interested in the, the way that the, the media culture of the Occupy movement's been somewhat of a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, obviously, the use of these tools is a, an incredible strength of the movement. Um, on the other hand, it, it seems like sometimes the hardware they use gets used as a, a grounds for dismissal of the grievances that they're raising using that hardware. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, not unusual to hear um, establishment voices, folks on the right sort of saying, uh, look at these uh, college students with their expensive Apple products. Um, what, what problems could they possibly have? Don't they realize how lucky they are and how good they have it? So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this? You know, was, was any part of the survey method you were using asking um, what was the hardware uh, platform you were using for access if you were participating in, in the um, social media or, or any sort of media activism? And also, I mean, is, is there any grounds to that sort of claim? And is there a different sort of hardware, uh, different constellation of hardware practices that, that might undercut some of those potential dismissals? Yeah, OK. So 
So one, in terms of um, the way that the right is going to frame you know, a movement, um, I'm, I haven't been like analyzing um, like framing of Occupy in the mass media or by the right. That's certainly true that, that was, you know, that, that's a trope that was used widely. So on the one hand, I would say it is, uh, at least in our, you know, so in our survey um, and the number of, there are four or five that are decent that have come out now. And um, on the one hand, it's true that Occupy skews uh, um, towards more educated, towards white, and towards wealthier than actually the, like the 99%. So like the mean would be higher than the national you know, mean or whatever. So there is truth in all of that. Um, in terms of what people are actually using on a day-to-day -day basis in different occupies, um, I, I think that largely um, it's a mistake. So most, most people who are at an Occupy at any given moment you know, don't actually have a laptop or an, or an iPad or whatever. There's a, hand, there's a handful of them that are there. They're often out of batteries. The internet is going up and down. Uh, there's really significant uh, problems of digital access uh, in the camps themselves and digital access inequality within the Occupy movement, which is something that got pretty widely discussed. So that was one of the interesting steps that people took was to try and say, well, so let's build free open networks that will be up and will be maintained uh, to try and get more people access. Let's think about how to build tools that people could interface with, with um, if they don't have a computer. Um, and more importantly, the vast majority of the media culture, which I don't focus on here, um, has nothing to do with electronics, right? So, so like most people's Occupy media culture experience is probably actually about like making a sign, making a poster, uh, chalking on the sidewalk, uh, participating in a GA, you know, verbally through the people's mic. So I think um, it's easy to like skew everything. Um, again, if what you're doing is is kind of looking looking to cherry pick examples or like images of a bunch of people with laptops and then use that to say, um, you know, look at these look at these kids. The, it's it's a more important question that you're raising though, which is the question of digital access inequality in network social movements, and that's I, I, that's a huge and deeply important question, and it's actually one of the fundamental things that I work on, um, and I'm it's 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 kind of the, one of the primary research research trends that I have. I haven't talked about it here in this paper, but the question really becomes, as more and more components of, of life in general, including civic engagement and including social movement participation, happen in digital spaces, um, what about the fact that we still have radical digital access inequality, which continues to be deeply structured by all the existing lines of intersecting structural oppression that we know? So that um, it's class, race, gender, and, and geography, and at, you know, at their intersection that is largely going to determine your life chances in terms of whether you have an always-on broadband connection in your home and a smartphone with a, you know, with, a, with a data plan and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of, you know, a lot of attention needs to be focused on, on that exact question, especially for people who are doing social movement scholarship. Um, just kind of your point about the signs kind of brought up a point for me. It's it's a question I have about, um, so there's a variety of methods of participating in media production in social movements like this. And I'm just kind of curious, like, I mean, to me, it seems like something, like an open forum is more inherently participatory than, like, making signs or just posting, like, I'm here or something on Twitter. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like 
what are the ways in which these media productions talk to one another or like form a community around themselves and like whether it's a participatory community or whether it's more like just put stuff out there, like make a sign, hold it up, walk in a rally, or is it like people responding to other people's signs and or people responding to other people's conversations? And yeah. Um, so I, th I think I should talk about that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, focusing on this role that, that a lot of people play, which is bridging across and between different platforms. So lots of people, I mean, and that could have, you could pick any two platforms and, you know, or any, pick any set of platforms and you'll find people doing interesting bridging work to move movement messaging across them. So whether that's like, you know, someone systematically walking through a camp, taking a picture of like, you know, every sign and then like tweeting it out or just the ones that they think are really compelling or whether it's, um, um, whether it's opening this crowdsourced 30-second uh, video production and then raising the money to put it into circulation on broadcast TV, or whether it's doing roundups on Storify of everything you can find across different media outlets to talk about, uh, I don't know, um, all the journalists that were arrested in, you know, in the raid. There, there's a wonderful Storify that, that looks at that. So I don't know if that's getting so. So one of the things that people do is spend lots of time um, besides the face-to-face -face engagement with a particular social movement formation or with Occupy, um, is remediating uh, media texts and moving them right. across platforms. I mean, oh, sorry. Just, I mean, so to me it seems like anytime you remediate something, you're also interpreting it in a way that you think is fit, and that's a way of participa participating with the original thing that the person said. But, I mean, it seems to me like just, I don't, and I, I not very well read on the media structure of the Occupy movement or what people are doing with it. My, mo most of my exposure to Occupy has been through racial issues in like late fall, where it was very much about how like people of color are not getting enough representation in Occupy, and this is a problem. And it's just kind of been a similar message through that. But my question is more like, when if it's just remediating or if it's just kind of rebroadcasting the message, like, isn't there something different that's happening? If it's not like a broadcasting of the message, it's also like people are making messages and talking to each other and arguing with each other's messages and kind of like, how does that happen through media production? Like, how does that converse, how is that conversation facilitated or is it not? And that's kind of a shortcoming of this. Well, I think it absolutely is. And I think you just described it. I mean, that's, that's absolutely what's, what's happening there. So people, People are using media objects that other people produce to generate a conversation that happens both in face-to-face -face spaces and across different platforms. I'm not sure. Um, um, so, like, I mean, if, if you take a bunch of pictures of signs and you put and you post those to your blog, like, are people actually responding to comments on that blog? Like, people who wouldn't, like, when you when you mention people who bridge, like, is that actually creating conversations in these new communities, or is it just yes. kind of there? Yeah, it absolutely okay. is. Yeah, uh, I'm interested in, in this research that you are studying things that are happening right now. How is it, uh, this kind of action research, how, uh, how is uh, this research helping the movement to learn about itself? How is it going to be in this transfer of knowledge to the movement? How do you think it could be better? How which piece could be better? The knowledge, the transfer of knowledge. You are studying the movement. Uh, we were studying with, through surveys and through the data how this can help the movement to, I don't know, uh, grow in any sense or to
to transfer this all these things that we are studying. The, the, the survey specifically, or no, all? Not of the it? survey. All, yeah. all of this, all, all this kind of uh, analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how can how can a movement grow uh, if it doesn't reflect? I mean, that's um, you know, that's just the fundamental. That's that's praxis. So you know, you act on the world, and then you pause and you reflect on the new conditions, uh, which are mostly not of your own making, but some small piece of them you may have contributed to to shifting. Um, and then you, you know, kind of determine what the next kind of course of action could be. So I guess part of what Occupy Research Network is trying to do um, is become a space for more open, shared, and distributed uh, movement-based reflection, um, which should generate new knowledge that's useful to people who are just interested in the movement as an object, although that's not the primary goal. Um, it will have that, that effect. Like, it will, we'll have better knowledge about the movement because of it. But it should also generate a community of practitioners within the movement who are movement actors who have a new set of skills, both technical skills, you know, how do you actually do this type of research, as well as new theoretical apparatus for understanding the work that it is that they're doing um, and how it might be modified. And so, like, on a really concrete level, you know, if one of the things Occupy cares about is that Occupy has been, you know, largely unable to broaden its base and inclusion of communities of color, um, that would be a great example. So, okay, so how will you know if it's working across the movement, movement-wide, um, if you don't figure out some ways to evaluate uh, who's participating in the movement? And we have lots of different ways to evaluate that, but if it always just remains at the level of like, well, I think things are getting better because like now there's a Latina woman in my working group. Like, you know, that's not really going to get us to uh, to systematic, uh, you know, and conscious attempts to broaden and expand the base of uh, of any democratic social movement, whether it's Occupy or or, or whatever it is. So, uh, this has been a fascinating exploration of uh, this this movement. And uh, as I think of movements that uh, I've lived through or uh, uh, been around or studied or whatever, uh, I often um, I mean, most movements have some set of objectives, uh, whether it's uh, sort of the anti-war movement or the civil rights movement or the women's uh, movement in general and so forth. And sometimes these uh, have very speci uh, a sp specific set of goals and objectives and legislation and so forth. But uh, one of the things that strikes me about Occupy is it, it seems... Uh, vastly diffuse uh, and it, uh, the actual goals uh, seem to range from everything from uh, finding new sources of energy uh, to uh, 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 getting some kind of uh, uh, justice on uh, resources and resource distribution to political practices and so on and so forth. So. I'm wondering if this has something to do with the media and the way in which uh, the media are uh, are integrated into this movement and the fact that things go off in so many different possible directions. Is, it, is, is this leading to a, a kind of a diffuse movement that uh, really doesn't have a clear set of objectives? You're saying what's the one demand? <laughs> <laughs> no. I just want to know what the 10 demands are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
where is this where is this going? Where uh, if 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 the movement succeeds, where what would what would the success look like? So I don't know. What did you think of the of uh, Talib Kweli's uh, People's Mic clip that I started the talk with? Yeah. So it reminded me of uh, some of the uh, some of the riffs I heard uh, many many years ago in in the civil rights movement. Uh, power to the people, uh, et cetera. So all movements have many, many different overtones and so forth. But uh, usually there's some core set of uh, goals or objectives that can be worked in legislation and so on and so forth. So I, what I'm trying to figure out is w what is the core? Where, where's the core? Where, what would you say is the, is the core of uh, Occupy? Yeah, so, okay, so on the one hand, there's a strategic decision by the Occupy movement to not articulate mm -hmm. the core demand. And the reason for that is uh, that Occupy wants people to participate uh, in direct democracy to figure out their demands for their, that, are, that are relevant to them for their local context. And it's been a very, very successful strategy. Um, it produced massive uh, and rapid growth of the movement, which is now in a temporary lull during winter after the repression of the camps, and which is about to explode again in the spring um, as we move towards uh, towards the next wave of of uh, occupation and mass mobilization. So, uh, you know, May Day is going to be really interesting this year. Um, so, partly there's a, str a strategic rejection of the clarification. Um, the effect of that, at the, at the same time, there are very clear demands that are articulated by the vast majority of occupiers, including lots of really concrete legislative proposals. I don't know if you've seen Occupy the SEC, uh, but they have a 153-page filing on the Volcker rule uh, and the, the reform of financial legislation. And so, I mean, there's there are many, many concrete proposals, uh, political, legislative, as well as cultural that are you know, kind of coming out of the movement. I think more importantly than anything else, you could, so social movement scholars talk about different kinds of movement outcomes, right? And typically, or at least political process theorists divide movement outcomes into um, mobilization outcomes, cultural outcomes, and quote unquote hard political outcomes. So the political outcomes are you passed a new law or you elected a new person. The mobilization outcomes are you were able to attract many more people to a higher level of participation in your movement. And the cultural outcomes are you're able to transform discourse, culture, make things that were unthinkable thinkable, uh, raise new ideas, and spread them and circulate them. And I think that what we can already say is that the Occupy movement has had clear successes in terms of mobilization outcomes and in terms of uh, discursive or cultural outcomes. So there's the, the best example of this is the Pew uh, Know, nationwide Pew survey that looked at uh, what people in the U.S. think about wealth inequality, and the answer is that they weren't thinking about it, and now they're all thinking about it. So, in other words, Occupy did successfully manage to transform the national conversation so that it's now okay to talk about wealth inequality, which it hasn't been for about 30 years. Um, so that's a pretty, you know, concrete outcome. In terms of political outcomes, the answer is we're, we're going to, to have to wait and see what the political outcomes are. Um, and I would be you know, deep, deeply shocked if one, there weren't a number of pretty solid short-term political outcomes in terms of local local level uh, elections, as well as um, concrete political proposals uh, that move through through different uh, layers of, of government, you know, city, state, and federal level. And I think in some ways, maybe more importantly, 
the life course outcomes, which is a whole other strand of social movement theory, which I think is not talked about enough in media studies. Um, that's why I was trying to get to a little bit with some of this like long-term you know, participation of people in different movement spaces. So the um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who participated in Occupy and, and been experienced sort of direct, directly democratic you know, processes and been part of consensus and working groups and that kind of stuff, that's something that's going to modify their uh, horizon of political possibility, what they imagine you know, could be done in the future, and they'll carry that with them into uh, many other types of, of movements as, as we go forward. So it's kind of like the politicization of, a, of, a, of, of many people through that process. It seems to have uh, actually fed into uh, some of uh, Barack Obama's language, uh, certainly his willingness to go into uh, issues, uh, economic issues and issues of fairness and so forth. Uh, I'm wondering if Occupy has had some kind of role in uh, creating that uh, dialogue or at least opening up that space that he can then move into. So it would be interesting to see if it actually has an impact on the national election because that I would think would be a big thing to watch. Anyway. Thanks. Great. Well, um, there's an opportunity to continue to talk with Sasha about these points. Uh, there's a reception over in building E15, third floor. So come on over. And Sasha, thanks again for uh, 